Erica Ortegas. I fly the ship. Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Give Me That Star Trek. Its ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 64 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today we're discussing Star Trek main cast members who we think were or possibly are still underused. And when I say we, I mean that I'm not doing it alone. Making his Fire and Water Podcast Network debut with me today is DC Dave. Hi, Dave. Hi, Siskoid. How are you? I am always good when I'm podcasting. It's one of my uh, pleasures in life, and I'm, I'm glad that you're here. I think I sort of scooped you away from, like we say, this is your debut, but you were supposed to make your debut with Shag on, I don't know what show, JLI or... Well, you know, we're not allowed to talk about that particular show, but yes, I was supposed to uh, premiere with him. So maybe if he edits quickly before you do, I can still make my premiere there, but oh. uh, yes... Yes. It depends. <laughs> this is coming out the first Tuesday of September. Oh, I don't know. Shag is doomed. So he gave me some grief about it. But <laughs> if people enjoy what you're doing here, they can follow you there at the Bwahaha. Absolutely. So we're going to talk about underused characters. But first, before we go any further, this is your first time on the show. And so you get to answer that short questionnaire that demonstrates the kind of Trek fan you are. All right. I'm ready. So first, I mean, this is the big question. What does Trek mean to you? How did you become a fan of this? Wow. Well, uh, I'll be honest. I've been a fan since I was a wee lad. Before Next Generation, I caught the uh, reruns of TOS. My dad was an original Trek fan, having watched it live when it aired. And so I think he just kind of passed that love on to me. And so, of course... The original series uh, was high on my list, and then I remember starting to read the Star Trek comic books. I remember loving the who's who in Star Trek, pouring over that forever. And then rem I remember counting down the days until The Next Generation premiered. I think my freshman year of high school, maybe my sophomore year of high school, and loving every moment of it. And loving the, the Easter eggs to Kirk and crew. And then I've just always loved Trek. You've, you've stayed with it through all the iterations, through the new Trek? I've stayed with it for the most part. My history with DS9, that's probably the show I've seen the least. I, I know it's beloved, and I don't begrudge anybody that. It just never hooked me. Although... Now, many years later, I'm curious to go back, and uh, I think I've gotten the advice to start maybe in the late first season, early second season, and maybe I'll, I'll get hooked on it there. But every episode that I've watched, I've thoroughly enjoyed, but they've mostly been the one-offs, like the baseball episode or the uh, time travel with the Tribbles, those types of right, episodes. Right. 
So do you have a favorite iteration of the show? That's such a tough question. I struggled with this question for quite some time because I just love the show. And so many of the characters and stories and plots just speak to me. At various times, TOS, TNG, and Lower Decks have all held the spot as favorite. But I've got to tell you, since its premiere, since its announcement, Strange New Worlds has been my jam. Uh, there is not a moment of that show that I don't feel is probably some of the best Trek I've ever seen. So, uh, oh, all right. So usually when people grow up with like certain versions, you know, obviously we grew up with TOS and TNG. We're in that H bracket. Those tend to be people's favorites, you know? It's like, uh, so it's, it's really cool to hear someone actually you know, front for one of the new tricks and even two of the new tricks. As you mentioned, Lower Decks as well. Th these two shows are really some of the uh, most fun that we've had with Trek in a long time. Absolutely. And I, I think it kind of speaks to who's making Trek these days. It's people in our age bracket, right? You know, if you look at the showrunner for the season three of Picard, he too is in our age bracket, maybe a couple years younger, but he has an absolute love for all of Trek. And I think that might be why this new stuff that's coming out, because season three of Picard I thought was fantastic as well. But that's why I think Lower Decks and, and Strange New Worlds, at least for me, speaks to me. Because it's, it's really embracing the love letter for Trek that these showrunners should have been doing when they were making Enterprise. For example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that didn't really uh, click in until like season four. You know, Manny Cotto when, took over and, and we started getting, you know, a fan's eye view of Star Trek rather than, than some TV producer. Yeah. All right. Well, what's your favorite character then? Uh, you know, the captains for me on every series are always the strongest other than Lower Decks. It was a battle to figure out who my favorite captain is because I grew up on Kirk and... Man, Kirk was a, a man's man, and, and as a young boy growing up, that was definitely somebody to look up to. And I do love me Captain Pike. He is Captain Dad. Uh, you know, that's, <laughs> again, speaking to Strange New Worlds being such a love. And I, I love the humility that Pike has, and he really stands out from Kirk in that kind of point of view. But my favorite is Jean-Luc Picard. There, There's just something about him maybe because i was there from the beginning and i've watched him grow over the last 30 years jean-luc is just there's just something about him i just cannot get away from him being my absolute favorite character on all of track you can't go wrong with patrick stewart no not at all all right what then is your favorite alien race or culture in the trek universe well i just listened to last episode of give me the the star trek and I was reminded of a comment I made about the previous episode, which is my long way of saying the Orions. Oh. You and Ryan Blake had a fantastic discussion about the Orions, and it, it kind of opened up some thinking about that race that I, I just really had never given thought to, and it made it so much more interesting, made those characters and those aliens and that culture so much more interesting. And you speculated on a few different things regarding Orion culture. Since that episode you put out, we've had the Strange New Worlds crossover with Lower Decks, and we've gotten just another hint of Orion culture with the reference to Tendi's mom, uh, grandmother, some non-pirate Orions that we, we weren't expecting, that no one thought 
actually existed. And here we are with another aspect of their culture. And so I think for me, and, and maybe it's, again, coming back from TOS and being a young lad and, and Orion slave girls, but <laughs> the <laughs> the breadth of culture that we've seen interjected into what was originally just, you know, eye candy has been, I think, incredible growth of 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 the races that we've seen that are really background races some really interesting answers dave that's the kind of trek fan you are i think a trek fan who evolves with the times and you know i don't think orions were your favorites when you started so interesting this is Dave. The topic today, let's get into it, is underused cast members. Now, I'll tell you how we went about structuring this show, and then we can talk a little bit about how we made our decisions. Some rules that we set forth for ourselves. We each made up a list of five characters who we, because th- we could be here all day, but <laughs> so, a list of five characters who we think were underused and maybe offer some ways that they could have been better used or, you know, on their respective series or even in the future. And we did not share our lists with one another. So it's possible we have some of the same. And that's not a problem. We'll just, you know, overlap. And and that's fine. The only real rule is that it has to be main characters. Basically, the people who are in the opening credits of the show or for TOS characters, their movie opening credits. It's a pretty thin opening credit there. And I know it gets a little muddy in New Trek and in Deep Space Nine for that matter, but I think we can consider a Pulaski or a Hemmer as main cast for their one season, but we won't necessarily consider a Mr. Kyle or a Rom, uh, the Ferengi, not the Space Knight. So that's kind of the rules that we gave ourselves, but it's pretty loose. And uh, prior to the conversation, Dave, you said something like you were prepping all week or whatever. So I'm wondering, what did the prepping involve? I did a lot of research on first what was considered a main character? As you said, should we consider Pulaski? Should we consider Rom? Should we consider Hammer? And those rules helped me kind of form an opinion because my initial thought might include frequent guest stars, you know, characters like maybe Admiral April, characters I think could have the potential to be used in a larger context or better used in a larger context with additional stories. Narrowing it down to, okay, let's stick to main cast. Let's stick to characters that we have some history with, even if they were only here for one season. Let's examine how they were used, and let's examine what sort of growth that they had in that short time or long time. Because I didn't just look at one season characters. I also looked at characters that were there for four seasons or seven seasons or three seasons. And I really wanted to make sure that any of the characters I examined, not that they didn't have something to do, but that they didn't meet my criteria of having grown or been used to the full potential. So I really did my research on what sort of nuggets did we see the writers leave for certain characters that other writers never picked up on again. And as we go through this, I'll, I'll give examples of what I mean. I did much the same, or that was my approach, but I also looked at people that were misused. Underused, yes, but misused, where maybe they were given storylines that did not reflect well on them, or you know that, that sort of undercut their potential. So when we talk about potential, I agree there's something there. And then sometimes, you know, they, they kill the potential 
with the stories that they actually picked or even in the premise of the character. So anyway, you'll see you'll see what I mean, but I, I sometimes went into that that area. What character did you put on your list first? Okay, so my first character is Dr. Catherine Pulaski from The Next Generation from season two. When I think of Dr. Pulaski, my immediate thought is, oh, the McCoy clone, because that's exactly what the approach was that they brought to that character. They intended her to be ornery. They intended her to have conflict with Data. They wrote in the whole, she hates the transporter. If that's not a clone of McCoy, I don't know what is. I have to give credit to the writers. They did actually soften her over the course of the one season that she was on. She did, through the season, warm up to Data. Some of her first appearances with Data were were pretty rough. You know, like in The Child, which is one of the very first episodes of season two, she is talking about how Data is cold and, you know, that Deanna would probably benefit from having a human touch versus a machine touch at her side during the, the birth of the child. There's complete disregard for Data's humanity, complete disregard for Data's name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Data even corrects her, which, I, I mean, especially in today's age, I mean, in the 1980s, I'm not sure how they got away with that even then, but we did. But today, that type of thing is is very, you know, not something you would be doing. But the kernel of a great character was there. And I feel like had she stayed on the show, she could have developed quite a good character arc over the show. Like, I, I feel that, you know, they'd started to allude to a relationship with Worf. You know, she started to connect with Worf. That was one of the characters that uh, they showed a connection with. And if they had developed that into a connection, and that was something Michael Dorn has actually talked about in the past, was that had she stayed, there may have been that kind of story that had developed. So just imagine uh, Dr. Pulaski as the stepmother to Alexander, for example. I really kind of feel like, though, that she could have developed a real friendship between Data, with both her and Data learning and growing together, which would have been a a completely different relationship than the relationship that Data and Jordy had, right? Data and Jordy were very mutually respectful and very good friends. But here we could have had Data and Pulaski kind of growing together from a uh, as much of a lack of respect as Data would give, but Pulaski really growing into respecting this person. And I really think something that we've never seen before on Trek is a strained, terse relationship between captain and chief medical officer. We've never had that kind of conflict where they're respectful with one another, but at odds more times than not. And I think that would have brought in some conflict with her and Picard that we've never really ever seen. I think the closest is probably Janeway and the EMH. Because she does this, it was it was a reverse. Like she was very dismissive of his budding humanity and treated him a lot like a machine and his request with a certain disdain. <laughs> so, but, so it's the reverse where she she's the Pulaski and the EMH is the Data here. Like Captain and, and Medical Officer didn't necessarily respect each other <laughs> yes. as well as they could. This is the, that's the closest probably that we've had. Uh, yeah, I think you have a good take on Pulaski. Obviously, if she had stayed six seasons, 
You know, if Beverly never comes back, then she has room to grow. Like even in that little season, and it's the shortest season that TNG had because of the, a writer's strike. You know, she gets a little flirtation with uh, Riker's dad. And uh, like you say, she, you know, she's debating literature with war for something. So she gets little bits to do and sometimes a, a spotlight episode which is more medical like the one where she's all aged up and she's trying to solve that myst- that medical mystery. Um, yeah, she might have amounted to more. Here, here's where I'm going to upsell Deep Space Nine. <laughs> <You know? laughs> On that show, a lot of characters started with strained relationships, which made them pretty unlikable. And that's the, that's the problem people had with the first season and getting into it. You know, it was playing the long game. So that like people who were very at odds at the beginning become the best of friends by season four, season five, you know? So it's about growing relationships, whereas TNG, here's what the relationships are. They stick to that for the most part as we go through because it was more, it was meant to be episodic television that you can watch at any, you know, pick up any episode and and you're in, you know, you don't need to know any backstory or, or subplots. And today, television is much more serialized, as we can see in, in Strange New Worlds, for example. I'm, I'm not sure that Pulaski would have necessarily benefited from that storytelling style over six years, because a lot of the women, especially on TNG, didn't get very many stories compared to some, some of the men. But say it was written today, I can totally see how like that character would start off with very rough edges and we would warm to her as she would warm to the rest of the crew and become as beloved as as many of the others i agree Uh, here's my first choice if you're doing it chronologically uh, (laughs) i'm going i'm skipping to the end it's erica ortegas from strange new worlds this is the poster woman for this episode you'll find that this is the episode banner she's where this conversation started between us on social media actually that's how we came up with this episode topic. It's a bit early to make that call because the show is still going, but after two seasons, the most she's gotten is a subplot and that subplot resolved into her accepting that she flies the ship and that it's her whole identity. So it was sort of a, she wants to do more, but no, this is her role and she accepts it. She forgot to add that she's also the comic relief. So, uh, (laughs) and so was Quark in a sense, you know, but the difference there was that DS9 got 24 episodes a season and Strange New Worlds gets 10 and not everyone gets to shine equally. Erica is always fun and I like her, her somewhat insubordinate too familiar attitude, but it makes you want to see more sides to her, right? I, I I feel like this is a character that I would like to see shine more in future seasons, but I'm not always sure that they're giving her the chance to. She made my alternate list, and like you said, this was kind of the character that sparked this whole discussion. She is by far, I think, probably my favorite character on this show. Oh. Despite the little that she's had to do. And I think it's because of her carefree attitude and her, you know, familiarity with the captain and her confidence in herself. And I think that's part of what made her successful in that particular episode where she had lost her memory. I agree with everything you've said though that she is not been spotlighted yet. I was really hoping we'd get a spotlight for her in the second season. And that was probably my, my big disappointment for season two was a lack of spotlight episode for her. But the actress brings it every episode. I'm sure she knows just how little she's been used, but she does not let that affect her performance. In fact, she makes 
sure she brings everything to i think every scene that she has she is everyone's best friend on that show that's for sure she is right so she's like the classic supporting character it's trek and it's episodic trek it's not like discovery where we're supposed to be following burnham specifically right that this one's an ensemble show much more like the old days so i would really like to see her get more so here's what i wrote down for you know how they could have used her instead or will or could in the future because i think it's tough for a pilot to get off the bridge you know in fact i got another one on my list as you'll see <laughs> ah I, I think i made it as well mm, yeah well there, there's one particular that's been badly used but i i would say almost every pilot has sort of had struggles with this but she not only needs to drive the ship she needs to drive more plots is what it is <laughs> yes. so uh it feels like season two has wrapped up a couple of romantic subplots right Yes. Maybe, unfortunately, depending on what happens to those characters <laughs> after the cliffhanger. So I think Erica should be next in line for something, not necessarily a romance, but something personal. Either it's love or it's family. You know, she mentions a sister at some point. Okay, so we get an in there. She's a war veteran, but it seems like all those stories focused on Mbega and, and Chapel instead. Not that I want more TOS characters to appear this quickly, but my one idea it would be to have her become rivals with Sulu, who's maybe on the beta shift. This is my idea. He's on the beta shift, and he loses a bet to her that makes him transfer to astrophysics. I love this idea. That would explain his eventual transfer back. <laughs> you know, like he's like the best pilot in the fleet, but also why was he an astrophysicist in, in the first episode, you know? And it would be a, a comedy-based idea for a running subplot, which would spotlight Ortegas's whole thing. All the comedy comes, a lot of the comedy comes from her. So this would be a subplot that would be Interesting, personal, have a, have some legs, but also be a comedy. So I think that would be great for her. Well, that is a fantastic idea. I love the way you've integrated Sulu into that. And I could see that being a subplot, uh, you know, just appearances here and there. You know, he shows up to relieve her, not even with a, a mention of who it is. We just kind of think, is that Sulu relieving her? And then kind of let him kind of grow into that kind of you know, role of replacing her. And she does admit she's the, again, this is her confidence talking. She says she's the best pilot in the galaxy, right? Here we could have Sulu kind of saying, well, no, no, I'm, you know, the next generation of best pilot. You are yesterday's news. Let me show you how much of a better pilot I am. You know, we can't brush her aside yet. So yeah, she has to win that bet and he has to transfer out for a little while and he gets his uh, return to the seat after she leaves. Okay, thanks for the vote of confidence. Who do you have next? So next, uh, you know what? In keeping with the helmsman discussion, then I'm going to switch around to Ensign Mayweather from Enterprise. Ding ding! Yeah, that was that was going to be my next one as well. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll be curious to hear what you feel he should have done, but I'll, I'll just say this: we get a couple of nuggets. We know he flew the ship. We know that in the time of Strange New Worlds, he's a famous guy. In fact, Ortegas even says she looks up to him. There's a gym in her middle school named after him. We know that he grew up in space. And that's it. And we spent four seasons with him. He's probably the most underused character in all of Trek. Or maybe because we didn't watch Enterprise over and over like other some of the other shows. 
I'll admit to that, that he may have some spotlights that I don't quite remember, but then I remember the other characters more, you know? It's it's kind of, you know, he was a boomer, that's what they called it, right? Yes. Grew up on a slow-moving ship in the early age of exploration, and he had a fair bromance with Malcolm Reed. He was generally a pretty boring character, <laughs> is the thing, because the writers didn't know what to do with him. I mean, that's obvious to me. I think between Voyager and Enterprise, that era of the franchise had this production problem. Characters who were the writer's favorites and often then became fan favorites were given a lot of attention at the expense of others. You know, there's a real imbalance to those shows that you even see in later interviews that it seems to have caused frustration on set for the actors who didn't get a whole lot to play. And Mayweather is definitely one of these characters who fell by the wayside. Like, they, they thought, hmm, this is really interesting. We're going to do something about him being, like, one of the early astronauts. And then they didn't do anything with that. That's where I went with my pitch on what we could have gotten with Travis. Because he really could have been interesting as, you know, one of these early astronauts. I mean, let's face it, he's the first Warp 5 pilot out there, right? In all of Trek, he's on the first Warp 5 ship, and he's the one that's piloting it. Now, why an ensign is piloting it, I don't know. And in fact, in the earliest character outlines, they actually had Mayweather ranked up as a lieutenant, but then ended up uh, ranking him down as an ensign. You know, I feel like they could have done so much more with him. You know, he had all this experience, more than anyone on that crew, of flying in space, having grown up in space. I mean, he should have been out there... They should have been showing him developing flying techniques that are still used today. I mean, he should have been, uh, you know, plotting courses and doing astronavigation and astrocartography and really kind of doing much more than just sitting there pressing buttons. I like what you're saying because, to me, he should have been more like Hoshi. Yes, absolutely. It's like they're both technicians. They're both at ensign level because it's very technical what they do. It's not high profile, even though they're on the bridge. This is so early that it should be a lot clunkier. We don't have really have the universal translator. I got to punch buttons. I got to make it. I got to translate stuff to make it work. That's Hoshi. Like they made that communications job a lot more interesting. So they should have done the same thing with Travis and have piloting a lot more complicated than just driving. Right, which is what we got. We got the, the driving aspect, which I think even at this point, I get that we've been doing warp now for a little while if we're already at warp five, but I mean, he should have been out there kind of every time Archer gave an order to, well, let's go here. It should have been, well, Captain, hold on. I've got to do this, this, and this before we can just go there. What I think he really needed was... A, a personality injection. I mean, he's Ortegas, he flies the ship, but without the comedy or the edge. So I would have rewritten him a bit as a know-it-all. He's been in space his whole life. He thinks he has it figured out and it causes problems initially with his crewmates who nevertheless have to accept that he's often right. You know, so it fits our both our ideas. But his mistakes going further out into space and all the new tech and, you know, that means that he's going to hit a wall. Uh, I think there's a sort of pun there because despite his youth, okay, boomer, you know, like he's, he's, the, he's a bo there's a bo boomer dynamic that might develop where he bucks against the new stuff. He's set in his ways. He has trouble using or trusting it. He's kind, he would be like the young McCoy or the young Pulaski. That's a good angle to take with him as well. Yeah. We were the first explorers like this. Yeah, this is a fancy ship, but 
I've been there. I've done it. Eventually, very soon, I guess we cross through the final frontier. It gets further and further away and more and more unknown. And then he, he learns some humility. You know, so he, he would have had an arc, which I don't think he got on this show. No. Who's next? Uh, since we're kind of hanging around in this time period right now, I'm going to move on to Lieutenant Hemmer from Strange New Worlds. And Lieutenant Hemmer, I really liked the potential of this character. And I was really disappointed when he died. And I'm not sure what the, the meta reason was for killing him off. I, I mean, certainly we've gotten some good um, follow-up to that uh, with Ohura this season. But I really feel like there was a lost potential with Hemmer. You know, Hemmer had once explained that, and forgive me if I'm getting the quote not exactly right, but he had explained that pacifism, which is what he was, was a pacifist, was not the same as passivity, and he would, even if he wasn't willing to fight, defend Starfleet's ideals. That speaks to me from a almost a Captain America standpoint. You're not going to take the fight to somebody unless it's the last resort and it's it's because the ideal is being broken because the ideal can't be upheld and so i thought that hammer really could especially in the reflection of the world in 2023 be such a good moral compass for the crew a good moral compass for the audience he could have been a mentor for the entire cast, I really feel like he captured the spirit of Trek and what Roddenberry wanted to do with Trek and show where we had gone. It just seems like such a natural for him. So I feel like there was so much lost potential. So I, where I would go with him is just continue that arc of of mentoring and growing that mentorship with Ahura, growing that mentorship, though, also with Spock and helping Spock see you know, the balance between his two sides, maybe tempering or helping with the war veterans uh, that we have on the show, since we've got three of them, you know. So I really feel like he could have brought more, but I feel like he was underused because we have to eventually get to Scotty. So hmm. they could have kept him around longer. And I I really like the idea of Carol Kane being on the show, you know, absolutely as Pelia, but they haven't really done much with her either. When you think about it, they haven't. And she is on my short list of characters that I considered. She was, yeah, she was on mine too. So like she has her own vibe and there's some interesting stuff going on there, but it's like, she's going to be molding the young Scotty rather than it be Hammer. I mean, he appears a couple times. The actor is on the show a couple episodes this, this year. Yes, it was great to see him. So it wasn't, no, I need to leave or I have this other project. I remember there, him talking about there was a conversation where, well, this is what we're thinking about doing with Hammer. And he's like, cool in the gang. Uh, if that's, that, that's how it's got to be. I've, I think it's interesting, you know. Uh, and he wasn't contracted to be there as a, like a main cast member. It was always like a guest star and didn't appear in every episode just like Pelia. So I don't know. I don't know why this needed to happen, but hopefully they keep him around as a, you know, in flashbacks and this sort of thing like they did this year. Yeah. I really thought that was a, a unique and nice way to bring him back in and introduce him again this season. Yeah. Although I could have done without the zombie version of him. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't prepared for that much like Uhura wasn't, but I really liked that she was referring back to, the vids they had made. And in fact, at the time when I watched that, I thought, well, is that 
coming from last season? I don't remember that conversation. So I, I, you know, they obviously explained it in story, but I too hope that this is not the last we've seen of Lieutenant Hemmer. And so, and we had all the like Andorians that we don't have on the show regularly, etc. The Enar being, you know, one of the species on that planet. There was that whole world that could have been opened up. Oh well. My next one was from Voyager. I had my pick because uh, I toyed with putting Harry Kim on the list, but it was Chakotay who's the real victim of this era's character development imbalance. Uh, like Mayweather, they gave him a unique culture, but not much of a personality. And after a couple episodes exploring that culture, they sort of give up on that to concentrate on buxom aliens. So it's even worse because he's the first officer, which traditionally has been a big role in Star Trek shows. They never made good on any kind of real tension between the Maquis and Starfleet. They never pulled the trigger on the the suggested or inferred romance between him and Janeway. And when they give him a spotlight, it comes out of nowhere. Suddenly he's a boxer. Suddenly he's in a relationship with Seven. You know, it's, it's all over the place because they never sustained anything with him, either as a subplot or as a series of main plots. I like that choice, and I agree. He was also on my short list for underused characters because he, you're right. You you hit on all the the reasons why I felt the same way. He could have brought so much, or they could have done so much more with those subplots like you're mentioning i mean the mckee just kind of get pushed to the background after two or three episodes it feels like to me anyway and i feel like if we had i mean that could have been tension for the entire run of the show and isn't good drama tension so shouldn't we have some we have this built-in tension that they immediately dismiss which is a shame because that first officer role i mean he could have been instrumental in tamping down any sort of uprising or upheaval or dissatisfaction he could have been a great leader and second in command for Janeway there could have been that romantic tension between he and Janeway for that same reason you know that oh here we go we've got these two getting closer and closer but at the same time now we've got you know my crew her crew we're trying to integrate them what do we do here but those were all missed opportunities it's like these setup things but then weren't interested in writing for those things. You know, it's like, this is our premise, but then we're just going to do like an exploration show me the alien of the week or whatever it is. To fix this, first of all, I think you need it to be written as part of an actual American native culture, not some weird sci-fi version, which is what it was. And it was never really defined. So like I have native friends who really love Chakotay because he was rare representation. I totally get it. They deserved better is what I'm saying. Like representation that wasn't filtered through some weird white person idea of what what a so-called, and I'm going to use full quotes here, Indian stereotypes and tropes, you know, that's number one. And once you have that, I think it's easier to include it. And it doesn't have to drive stories, like be like the spotlight episode on this, because it's just an identity that informs behavior and storylines without it being kind of alien and exotic, which is, to my view, sort of insulting when you think about it. And second, I think he should have been a lot more resistant to Janeway's rule. They should have fought more. He should have won some or played behind her back sometimes, you know, for political reasons. She can't demote him or heck, she does. And that's driving the stories. You know, if they wanted to do more of a serialized Voyager, which I really think they should have done, but couldn't. I understand how that worked. But And then Sparks fly. Let's do that. 
and you do pull the trigger on what becomes a very volatile relationship. It was basically Picard Crusher light, romantic friends in a way, I don't know. And that would put him in hot water with the other Maquis, who then feel betrayed because we're keeping that whole tension alive at least a couple years. So there, there was a lot they could have done with him. And instead, he started getting fewer and fewer spotlight episodes. And the actor was bored. And it, it showed, quite frankly. Like, his performance suffered. Well, and I had mentioned earlier about Erica Ortegas and how the actress brings, despite the lack of meaty material for her, she doesn't let that inform her performance. But you're absolutely right. And and I have no hard feelings toward the actor of Chakotay for having gotten bored. That What he was sold and what we were given or what he was given to work with were definitely two different things. And then, you know, when you add Seven and she becomes very popular, or she's also dating the producer, you know, it's like nothing against Jerry Ryan. Of course, she was she was excellent in that role. But it just seemed for a lot of the crew, it's like, well... All the stories are now going to this other person in addition to the already the favorites, and they became less and less favorite. Anyway, who do we have next? Well, let's stay on Voyager then, and I'm going to go with the obvious, which is Ensign Harry Kim. I like Harry, and I like the prospect of what Harry could be. This is the nugget that kind of really drew me to choose Harry, and that is that Harry graduated from the Academy as valedictorian of his class and earned interstellar honors. Now that, to me, rather than, you know, the eternal ensign, which is what I think of when I think of Harry, he really was just on the bridge doing things, or he was goofing off with Paris. While those are fine, I feel like they really did a disservice to that character because this character, more than any character, could have been our point of view character. He shows up on Voyager. This is his first mission. He's bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and, and thinks, you know, Starfleet is magical and we can do no wrong and everything's going to be great. He has this really strong relationship with his parents where he talks to them every week. And all of that, of course, gets thrown away when he gets tossed to the other side of the galaxy. Instead of just making him this bland person, he could have been our point of view. We could have grown with Harry through these seven years and learned with him and learned what it meant to be a Starfleet officer. So obviously he should have gotten field promotions. We should have been able to see him basically grow up. But even more, I feel like seven seasons of Star Trek Voyager should have given us basically Harry experiencing the seven stages of grief. Harry could have gone through the shock and, and disbelief, the denial, the guilt. And I'm not saying make this everything that his character is for the entire season, but touching on those parts of him to help him kind of grow and us grow with him so that eventually, you know, he's in denial that he's on the other side of the galaxy thinking, oh, I, I know we've been here for a while, but we're going to get back. I, I really believe we're going to get back. Admittingly, we did get a little bit of that in one episode where he is, and forgive me, my Voyager history is kind of bad here, but, you know, he kept getting into that loop and he had to go back in time to save the ship and stop them from trying to get back home so that at least the crew lives. Well, we could have gotten a lot more of that. And so, you know, the depression, the loneliness, you know, he's not going to be off in the holodeck creating adventures with Paris if he's depressed and lonely about where they are. But then showing some working through this and, and then even, you know, acceptance to the point where 
he's now accepting that he is never going to get home, but then has to deal with, oh my gosh, you know, we just found a shortcut. Oh my gosh, we just knocked 20 years off of our trip. Or, oh my gosh, we're back in sector 001. We made it through the transwarp conduit. We are home and I don't know how to deal with this. So that that's where I feel like we really could have gotten a lot more out of uh, Harry. And certainly he should have been promoted at some point. I mean, if he was this head of his class, wonderkind, on a fast track, as soon as he reaches the Delta Quadrant, he's on the slowest track ever. Other people get promotions. The guy who they just got out of prison still is a lieutenant. <laughs> You know? and, and even gets knocked down and then gets a promotion. Yeah. So, yeah, Garrett Wong is, uh, agrees with you, you know, <laughs> that he should have been doing more. You know, that just it's kind of ridiculous that his character was you know, so stunted, so so stuck. You know, like we talked about pilots not having anything to do with it. Here, the pilot has a lot of stuff to do. The pilot is cool and gets romances and all sorts. But it's the ops. And ops is in the back instead of the front like the other shows. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a real shame across the board what they did with this character. It's like almost like they didn't want to do anything with him from the beginning. That's almost how it feels. So I agree that if we'd seen growth and change with him, not just be somebody's best friend, which is kind of what he became. I think one of the things that Garrett Wong talks about is that there seemed to be chemistry between him or Kim and Balana. So that originally, before they went on the on the road to making Tom and Balana a thing, they were always pairing up Kim and Balana. There could have been something there instead, and it might have given Kim something to do in terms of subplots. No, that never happened either. But I'm glad you picked him because he was on my short list. My next one is, uh, we're going back to TNG, and I didn't mention how I felt all the women were underused on that show. One of them even quit the show based on that. But mine here is Deanna Troy, because I think they underused Marina Sirtis specifically in her personal appearance. And I've said this before, she's extremely funny, but they hardly ever let that out in Next Gen. A Fistful of Datas, which we talked about in the last episode, is one of the rare exceptions. I think First Contact, she's very funny. And maybe sometimes some eye-rolling with her mother, I guess that's almost it. And Troy was also overpowered. So she disappeared for many episodes if her lie detector sense would screw up the plot, basically. So despite the setup, she had to stay away from Riker. You know, like they set up this past romance, which was a carryover from uh, the Star Trek II TV series from the 70s that never came to be. There were characters there that, that were going to have this kind of relationship. Ilya and uh, Decker, as, as it turned out in the movie. That, that's supposed to be the model here, but because they don't want to do that, because they want Riker to have, Riker and Troy to have romantic sub plots, then they can't really do anything with this setup. So again, it's like we wrote something in, but we don't want to use it. That was problematic. Unlike most of the TNG crew, she didn't have real hobbies. She liked chocolate, which is about as lame as lame can be, you know? <laughs> so she's just like Chakotay. Oh, we, we want to do a boxing episode. Who doesn't have a hobby? Chakotay. Let's say he does. Oh, uh, Troy. Yeah, she loves Westerns. Really? That comes out of nowhere, you know, because they never developed that in story and it just shows up once and then hardly ever or never again. I agree with you completely because Troy is a favorite character of mine. I love who she is, but I think probably I love who she's become. We talked earlier about my own growth in Trek and my ability to change through the years. And that's certainly the, the Troy that I remember now, having seen her in season three of Picard and even in season that one episode of season one of Picard. I loved that Troy. I loved who she was. I loved how she interacted with everybody. She is 
fantastic. It's clear to me that throughout the years on TNG, she should have been funnier. That's the thing. Because first of all, it works within the actress's set of skills. She would have been teasing others about their emotions more, maybe when, you know, when it's appropriate. I think I would have pulled a Sopranos, you know, have a lot more debriefings on the counselor's couch Hmm. where she shows tough love rather than some sort of neutral psychobabble compassion thing that was always kind of boring. She needs to be, be much more in Riker's face about his choices, a lot snarkier and less aristocratic generally. More like, well, I'm going to say it, it, it makes, it would have made sense within the story, but because it would have been more like Luaxana in many ways. The fruit wouldn't have fallen too far from the tree. So when her mother shows up, she's frustrated all the same, but we can tell it's because they're so much alike. So start up a romance with Worf much earlier, give her the stepmom problems with Alexander in a more obvious way. I would also take a page from Barclay and give her the holodiction problems because in that world of the holodeck, she can't feel everyone's emotions. So things are more surprising, which is pleasant, more relaxing than her day-to-day where she's bombarded by emotions. So I would have played with that and given her like this kind of growing problem, maybe. There was much more to do with Deanna Troy than just make her sit on the sidelines because, oh, yeah, the plot is going to be completely screwed up if uh, if she's there to say somebody's lying. Exactly. And I will say I love that idea of throwing her into the holodeck and that being her way to unwind. And yeah, that could be a growing addiction for her because I'm sure she needs to have that time. It's, it's almost like Superman, you know, needing to block out all of the things that you can hear. You gotta have some downtime, and when it's constantly coming at you, you're almost craving that as much or if not more than the chocolate that she enjoys. <laughs> Superman is a good reference because one of the problems with Troy is probably that she was a little too perfect. Well, she didn't have problems because she had to take care of everybody else's problems. She always seemed to have the right thing to say, etc. That does not make for a very interesting character. Well, and honestly, I think some of the worst patients are medical professionals. Yeah, so, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, she she definitely could have used some faults and some imperfections. You know, she can heal everybody else, but she can't necessarily heal herself. Yep. Final choice. I'm going to go with uh, a brand new character this year, and that would be Captain Liam Shaw from Picard. Okay, you went for Shaw. Does the dipshit from Chicago get a lot to do? Absolutely. Does his character have an arc? Uh, Some would argue yes, some would argue no. But I feel like there was so much more potential. And the reason I say that is because we've killed him off. You know, like you've said with Ortegas, we still have more seasons to come. So we still have opportunity. You know, we revisit this list five years from now and Ortegas may not be there. With Shaw, he shows up as an antagonist, and you just want to hate the guy. But once you understand the depth of his character and his motivations and and why he is, you really, at least for me, start to enjoy him and understand him and feel for him. Again, here we go with another... Uh, you know, somebody that's that's been in war, uh, who has PTSD and has survivor's guilt, being the, the lucky 10th person identified by some lowly lieutenant to be saved. And, and like he said, you know, why me? Why some dipshit from Chicago? Why should I get to be saved and not all of these other people? And that, I think, speaks to a lot of people, especially people that have gone through war 
and have experienced survivor's guilt, but not just war. It, it's it could be natural disasters. You know, survivor's guilt is not limited to just people that have experience in war, uh, not just veterans. But he's an incredibly smart man, right? He is an engineer by trade. He has risen through the ranks to captain after being enlisted, basically. He describes himself as having a by-the-book attitude. Well, of course he's by-the-book. He's an engineer. What engineer is not by-the-book? Even Scotty is by-the-book. That's why he's as big a miracle worker as he is, because he understands by-the-book, and he understands how things... He can think outside of the book, but he's still playing by the book. Well, with Shaw, we just never got the opportunity to see who he could be beyond just the episodes that we got with him. So for me, I would have loved to have seen him head a Starfleet Corps of Engineer type series where he's the captain and our villain of the week would be technology, especially today. We have so much technology and I realize that, you know, AI is a big thing right now and and our writers are on and actors are on strike because of, you know, one of those things is AI. That could be a villain of the week. We could have, you know, we have all of these smart devices around us and technology goes wrong. And I realize we've we've seen these plots probably a thousand times on every iteration of Star Trek. Go out there and solving technological issues and helping people, whether it's a pre-warp society, whether it's a emerging warp society, whether it's an advanced warp society, I still would have liked to have seen him kind of take that by-the-book attitude and be thrown into this conflict of non-by-the-book opportunities. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the um, Starfleet Corps of Engineers ebook series. So uh, I could totally see the uh, you know that kind of series and have him be the captain in that book series. I guess the main character is really Sonia Gomez, but she's not the captain. I'd be into that if he'd survived. Or if we said prequel, when they decided to kill him off, I don't think they knew he would become so popular with fans. I agree. And, and that's obviously a shame. And I, I understand the meta reason, the story reason why he needed to die, but doesn't mean I like that decision. My final choice is also a Picard character. And there's plenty to choose from in a way because they jettisoned most of the cast after a couple of years, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so it's Elnor. It was between him and Soji, but at least that actress got to do other stuff, other characters. Elnor just seemed to be such an afterthought. I thought, he, you know, He's Picard's bodyguard. He has these personal missions, a strict code that they ended up doing more with on Discovery, when you think about it, you know, than they ever did on Picard. But then he spends part of season two dead, and season three, you know, he's completely disappeared in favor of the classic cast, which I get is probably what the series should have been more like from the beginning. But if you're going to introduce characters, I'm going to be thinking, what are these characters doing? So the rest of the cast got final endings he didn't even manage that. There's just a note online from a producer saying, um, we know we said that Elnor went to such and such a ship, uh, the Excelsior, I think. The Excelsior. Yeah. And then the Excelsior is in that battle at the end with the Borg or Asborg, whatever, and is destroyed, I think. Anyways, Elnor wasn't on the ship. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> he doesn't even show up, <laughs> you know, to, to give us that moment. Uh, so I think for me, he's the most underused. And uh, what I would have done, well, I think it's not too late for the character. Like they said, he survived. Okay, let's go. Since he joined Starfleet, he could conceivably be included in the proposed Star Trek Legacy show, serving on Seven's ship. And once there, the spotlight plots 
I think are pretty obvious. His code of absolute candor gets him into trouble. His Romulan heritage allows for stories featuring that culture. Uh, and he's sometimes caught between his oath to the Kowat Milat, which really sounds like something out of Dune rather than Star Trek, hmm. and his oath to Starfleet. I think the problem is largely that in season three, the cool martial arts aspect was given over to Worf and Picard's surrogate son element was given to Jack. So he sort of became redundant and they didn't bring him back. I would have still attempted it. Like, let's say we're rewriting it. You still have Jack. So you get jealousy about Jack or a bigger role to play with Rafi as she goes up against the gangsters. You know, they could have been like a trio there and he would have been a lead character who falls to the new Borg collective, right? Because of his age. So I think there was room for, well, not room for him because there was too many characters in that series to cater to. But I think allowances could have been made to keep the character alive. I agree. That's a, that's a great choice for Picard. And you're right. There were a lot of tie-ups for those, or hap- I wouldn't say happy endings. No, but we get an ending for Rios. We get an ending for Jurati, you know. Definitely um, Elnor is near the top of the list for Picard characters that were underused. I like the way that you've uh, framed him and how he would be used. And I, I like that idea in that third season that he could have been an add-on to the Worf, uh, Raffi crew, if you will. The, the three of them. That would have rounded that out a little bit better, I think. You'll notice I didn't include any DS9 characters. And I thought of TOS as well. But between the movies and the prequel shows, like those characters, even if not the actors, they seem to be more well in hand than most. And New Trek is a little harder to evaluate because the shows aren't over. And they seem to be, you know, they don't work with the same model is the thing. So less, fewer episodes, sometimes concentrating on a on a main character like Lower Decks. It's not the bridge crew, you know. But the TNG era was doing ensemble shows. So when a member of the ensemble is underused or misused over the over years and hundreds of episodes, that's when you feel it. And so DS9 was my exception. Uh, not only do they give everyone storylines, but even recurring characters, even villains were unusually well-developed. Rom, Lita, Garak, uh, Keiko, Vic Fontaine, Dukat, Kai Wynn, Damar, Weyoun. I found no reason to put any of that cast on the list. Maybe that's why I love it. You know, it's like they never, they didn't leave anyone behind. Even though DS9 is sorely underrepresented in my experience with Trek, just the fact that I know about all of these characters that you just mentioned tells me that they made an impact and that there's not an underusing of those characters. So even somebody with as little experience as me knowing those, I think that's a good thing. And and so again, maybe I do need to go back and, and try DS nine once again for myself. I kind of had a few other characters that I looked at. I, I don't feel like lower decks or prodigy. I, I haven't even watched prodigy. I'm sorry, shag. You're saying sorry to me too. Cause I love it. Oh, Okay, well, I'm sorry, sorry, Sisquid, that I haven't watched that yet. It, it's on my list, I promise. But the uh, characters on Lower Decks, it's hard to nail down because that show isn't over yet, like you said, exactly who may or may not be underused. And, of course, I know we're saying that while we're also looking at you know, Strange New Worlds or Discovery or Picard, but the fact is that you know, Strange New Worlds just has such a love, um, or I have such a love affair with it. I had to look at that show. If I had to look back at my list of characters, I would say that I considered only one character from Discovery, which was Jet Reno, 
which is another character I just absolutely love, another engineer. Unfortunately, I haven't had the chance to watch season four of, so I don't know whether she's used more. From what I've read, it looks like she's used a little bit, but I still feel like she's she's very one-dimensional, that she doesn't have a lot of character development, just these little nuggets. But I didn't know enough to be able to say, yeah, she's not being used. I want to go back, though, and kind of hit on Picard for a second, because I feel like... There were a few characters. I actually had a couple characters on my list. Laris and Rios were two characters that didn't quite make the cut. Because they did kind of get some loose ends tied up. But Laris, I mean, she was left hanging. That poor girl. She's still waiting on at Chateau Picard for Picard to come back. And he's up with Beverly dropping their son off at college, you know. I feel like Laris could have had far more impact on the story. But again... Like you've said regarding season three of Picard, there just really wasn't room for her. It was time to put that toy away. We've got Beverly back and, you know, for the better, I think. But it would have been if they would not have brought Beverly back, it would have been interesting to include Laris. That's what's tough about New Trek is that they're not writing the ensemble shows with, you know, seven seasons, 24 episodes a season where you can give spotlights to everyone. It's like, okay, this is Picard's show and there's... There's a group around him, but it's it's not their story. It's right. it's Picard's story. It's Burnham's story. It's Mariner and Boimler's story. It's you know much more <laughs> than anyone else on on those shows, and it's a given. It's like that's just how they're writing it. So Strange New Worlds really is an exception. I, I think I think Prodigy is pretty even, but it is Dal's story. It is let's redeem Janeway. <laughs> story but you know strange new worlds really is playing by the old the old book the episodic i mean it's paid off because like this season uhura was a big deal obviously she's always been a big deal but to us because of longevity she'd never got these spotlight episodes back on the show you know in the old days and chapel is a big deal she was never a big deal before you know even though she's like a long-lived character because they gave those people spotlights big spotlights if it were like the other New Trek shows, and it was Pike's story, which season one was kind of a little like that. It's Pike's story, and everybody else is kind of a guest star. It could have been that. And the fact that it's not means, wow, look at these different characters shining. So I think Stranger Worlds has a lesson to teach to the rest of New Trek, or even to old Trek, which wasn't always very balanced in its... Uh, is taking care of its main cast. Well, it's funny you say that about um, Strange New Worlds because I did feel like it was focusing on Pike maybe a little too much in the first season, but not really, but maybe. At the same time, the first episode aired this year, and my question was, well, wait, where's where's, where's Chris? What, yeah. yeah, where is he? What, why isn't he there? But you know what? It actually was very refreshing and really grew that ensemble this year to not have it be the Pike show. Lon was another character who got big spotlights this year, you know, and I didn't have any real feelings about the character one way or the other after season one, but season two is like, Lon is one of my char- favorite characters now on the show. Same with me. Yeah, it, it really helps when you can do that. And I, in this case, Anson Mount had, uh, you know, was given paternity leave, so he sat out large parts of, of different episodes, especially at the front of the season. And that just helped the whole show. You know, it, it doesn't have to be the one person. I think they went to that model because maybe the rest of television was kind of like that. 
you know, five, six years ago, whenever they started. But I think we're we're ready for some contrast here. Absolutely. And I think it actually serves the, the story better. I like this idea that we may not, I, in fact, I almost hope we don't revisit the doom and gloom of Pike's known future every season. Or, you know, it can get a passing mention, but we know it's going to happen. We don't have to focus on it. We don't have to live with it. You know, let him breathe, let him experience life and kind of forget about it. Learn to forget that he knows what his future is. And maybe we can do that too and enjoy so much more. Maybe as a final hopeful thought, apparently the producers of Strange New Worlds know they're sitting on gold and everybody on the show is very committed, loved doing the show, both in front and the back of the cameras. And they've been petitioning Paramount Plus to give them 20 episode seasons uh, and uh, stretch this out, make it bigger and have more episodes come out every year and for longer. So if, you know, once the strikes are resolved, if that can happen, if uh, Paramount realizes what, what it's sitting on, it's like its biggest success since the beginning of New Trek. Maybe we'll see more of these characters shine and like this will be one of the great Star Trek casts. It already is, but you know, uh, in, in terms of relating them to one another across the years, this will be a very well-remembered show. I sure hope so. DC Dave, are there any projects you'd like to pimp? Perhaps that JLI episode that we uh, dare not mention too, too strongly earlier? <laughs> Shag, cover yours. I will be on an episode of uh, JLI coming up shortly. I'm also going to be on an episode of Give Me Those Star Wars with Ryan uh, fairly soon, where we will be talking about uh, Star Trek Visions. Excuse me, Star Wars Visions. I'm getting my franchises mixed up. But uh, otherwise, uh, you can find me uh, on social media as DC Dave or DC Dave from San Diego, or in the comment section on the Fire and Water podcast network uh, website awesome well thanks again dc dave the transporter room awaits or maybe you're mccoy and you want to shuttle anyway the two, the two doors are next to each other i'll stick around for subspace transmissions that's your feedback on our previous episode thanks again thank you all autumn the leaves change colors and begin to fall the kids go back to school Pumpkin Spice becomes its own food group, and little ghosts and goblins are on the streets begging for candy. But something sinister awaits. Back in the woods among those dead trees sits a foreboding, dilapidated manor you can't resist. You must go inside and return to the house of Franklin Stein. Did you hear that? I heard that. What was it? Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. The Supermates Podcast presents four spine-tingling episodes covering your favorite classic horror films featuring these iconic stars. Griffin Dunn and David Naughton. You're one of the undead, and I'm a werewolf. Yes, that's right. Bela Lugosi. I am Dracula. I bid you welcome. Claude Rains. You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll show you! <laughs> and Peter Cushing. I can hear his voice! It's in your own mind! It just has to be true! 
plus your favorite superheroes versus classic monsters. I understand your concern, Mr. Wayne, but I don't think you need to worry that Wayne Tech is responsible for this invisible man. But I seem to remember last year hearing something about an invisibility project. Visit fireandwaterpodcast.com or your favorite podcatcher for the 10th annual journey into terror at the house of Franklin Stein. available in pumpkin spice flavor. Incoming subspace transmissions. Your comments on our previous episode, Give Me That Star Trek Western, with my guest, Captain Entropy. We have Nord starting us off, says Star Trek doing War on Terror with the Zindi arc was one of the most disappointing parts of the entire franchise for me. As you say, they're supposed to be beyond what we are today, but then the writers decide to straight up depict the present time mindset, not to comment on it at all. It is now the mindset of our future heroes. Might makes right. Screw you if you get in our way. Our reasons are more important than any concerns anyone else might have. Any completely innocent people they can steal from and bring doom upon. The only times they deviate from death to everyone but us is when one of them is affected by a disease, which, if anything, is the writer saying that there must be something wrong with you if you think there's something wrong with what George W. Bush's government is doing. The most Fox News season of Star Trek. That's quite the take, and maybe I'd have to rewatch the season to really make a determination if that's like a lens that truly makes sense. Nord is talking about this because one of the Western episodes takes place during that season as just like a one-off. It's actually the one that says, no, this is the wrong way to go, you know, so different writers may have different takes. But I realized that America at the time, including its entertainment, was traumatized by the events of 9-11. And then it somehow showed in a more right-wing kind of take in media. And that may have touched Star Trek as well. So that's an interesting topic to maybe consider for later. Rob Kelly says, this was a really fun show. I thought the observation regarding how Trek audiences thinking on Westerns evolved over time was interesting. They were all over TV during Toss's run, but by TNG, Westerns were gone. I remember watching Fistful of Datas when it first aired and thought, oh, they're doing an old-timey thing. But Spectre doesn't read like that. Captain Entropy is always a fine guest, no matter what the topic. Doug Adamson says, I really enjoyed this episode. I had forgotten the TOS episode ending, or maybe I never saw it in full on BBC Two. It is interesting how Westerns have effectively died out as a TV staple. I suspect it's perhaps because they seemed almost another world. Most folks have no idea how it worked or links to the West anymore as older generations pass on. Much like there's little World War II or Korean or even Vietnam War dramas being produced either these days. Of course, the element of shooting episodes set in the past is expensive for sets, etc. So there is that element. But it is odd how Trek seems to have endured longer than Westerns managed, thanks to still being in the future. Rob McCarthy says, I've come around on Spectre of the Gun. I really disliked it as a kind of blag. Why is Star Trek working this hard to do a Western? At least fall through a time warp. Now, I see some god dude putting Kirk through a test is very Star Trek. Also, it's proof that Star Trek is not our universe, as their history of the Oki Corral from the movie is from the movie My Darling Clementine. But don't worry, Spock's not wrong. It really happened that way in their universe. Jack Bond says, uh, midway through, I remembered a newspaper review of The Final Frontier that criticized its Western in space aspects. I thought the review was too influenced by the Paradise City scenes, or maybe it was too influenced 
by the knowledge that writer-director Shatner liked to ride horses. I still think it's just a glance to the West, but what do you think of this glance done on a movie budget? Uh, to me, it always felt more like Mad Max. You know, that's, that's what it looked like rather than any kind of Western. Do I realize, yeah, the frontier town, but you don't really do Westerns. A frontier town with three ambassadors. <laughs> so, so, no, I think you're right that the that review was a little off. And finally, DC Dave says, fantastic discussion. As always, lots of great knowledge about Westerns and Western tropes. I was never much into Westerns growing up, so the Western tropes were lost on me. I love the explanation for the set's inspector. I never would have considered that, but it makes perfect sense. I love that this is a construct of Kirk's imperfect memory or, or knowledge. As you suggested, the evidence is there. It just wasn't obvious to me. Well, thank you, DC Dave, and thank you for participating in this month's episode. The Fire and Water Podcast Network has a Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. If you like this content, want more like it, think about leaving a one-time or a monthly donation like Doug Van Diver. Join me and Doug in the fleet at fireandwaterpodcast.com. So until the next episode, this is Siskoid reminding you to go boldly. Go boldly.